Welcome back to Four Psychologists. Wait, <laughs> shit. <laughs> Wild Turkey 101. <laughs> Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. With me here, as always, is my friend and colleague, Mickey Inslicht. Hi, everyone. Uh, pleasure to be here. So once again, we are blessed with a, a very special guest. Two weeks in a row that we've had just a fantastic guest. Mickey, do you want to introduce? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, so we have with us none other than Elizabeth Page Gould, who is uh, a colleague of ours at the University of Toronto. Um, she is the Canada Research Chair in Social Psychophysiology. Did I get that right? Oh, yeah. Um, and not only is she a colleague, she is uh, one of my best friends, and I think a friend of many in the department, and uh, we love her. So, uh, yeah, thank you for being here, and uh, it'll be, I think, a fun discussion. Yeah, howdy, folks. Thank you so much for having me. It is a true honor. <laughs> <laughs> so, Liz, uh, a little later in the show, you're going to be helping us fall in love, right? Yeah, that that was my primary goal. <laughs> yes, right. So, I think the idea is that uh, I felt there was like some love lost between UL and I. We weren't like, I mean, we're good friends, but I mean, I, I felt we can go one step or two steps further. Oh, it's better and, than no love loss. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we thought you could help us, but then while you're here, let's like, Let's go crazy. Menage à toi. All um, right. And, uh, all of us fall in love with each other. And let's see if we can do that in uh, an hour or two. I mean, an hour for you, listeners, but uh, for us, maybe a little bit longer. And of course, we are uh, uh, today three psychologists. How many beers do we get, UL? There's six beers, and I'm drinking whiskey, so that's uh, three beers apiece for you guys. Oh, nice. three beers apiece. Excellent. Excellent. I was upset about the six-pack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and UL is kind of weak with the beer on occasion. He's, um, actually, he's this has not succumbed to any of my pressure. None. <laughs> yeah, sorry. And that's actually remarkable, I I, I think. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty good at applying You're the pressure. You're good at exerting pressure. <laughs> and yet, here we are. Yes, here we are. Uh, so today, I was I asked UL, uh, who bought the beer, who was responsible for beer today, I asked him what beer he got. And it was like a mind meld between Liz and I, because Liz True. gave him a recommendation. And she said, you must buy Blanche de Chambly by Unibrew, a... Um, a fine brewer out of, uh, I believe it's Chambly, Quebec. Um, Unibrew is the, is the brewery. Uh, one of my favorite breweries in Canada. Uh, they were at one point a, a microbrew, then they were bought by Sleeman's, which is a kind of a bigger beer in Canada. And then more recently, they were bought by Sapporo. So they're not truly a microbrew anymore. Um, but Blanche de Chambly is probably my favorite go-to standard beer in Canada. Um, and you recommended it, and it's exactly what I wanted. <laughs> Thank you. That's why we're that's yeah. That's why we're such good friends, Mickey. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so this is a uh, it's a white beer, a Belgian white beer. Uh, it says ale on lees, and I've read that for a few decades. I have no idea what that means. Do you know what that yeah, means? Yes, there's a special kind of yeast, like or I believe that there's just this buildup of kind of yeast at the bottom, and so while it's in the beer bottle, it continues to get more fermented. But you might want to fact check me on that. But that's what I believe it is. We do not believe in fact checking here. We're just <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> I just yeah. noticed when you held up your bottle, yeah. you've drunk like more than half your beer already. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, you know. Yeah. Listen, <laughs> she is not a lightweight, you know. Absolutely not. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, this is a, a wonderful beer and uh, it's good drinking. And this is actually something that all of our listeners in, at, in all across Canada and in the U.S., this is widely available in North America. I'm not sure about Europe, uh, where we do have uh, quite a few listeners as well. Um, I'm not sure about that. But in Europe, you got so many choices, so you don't need uh, Canadian beer there. That's right. Uh, and I'm skipping the beer today, and I'm going straight to the Wild Turkey 101, nice. which I don't think you can get that in Canada. I actually got this in the States and brought it back. Oh, nice. Well, uh, cheers, everyone. Uh, cheers. It's cheers. nice being here on a warm summer night. So, you know, uh, so what's going on, everybody? I mean, uh, we... Uh, the three of us just attended a conference. Uh, oh, wait, 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 wait. Before we get to that, I, I remembered some follow-up. I was corrected. I said that Fireball was banned in Europe. And uh, Daniel Vaspial, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, he wrote it on Twitter to say that Fireball is not, in fact, banned in Europe, but also that he would send us uh, Swedish booze. Nice. So, I was exceedingly <gasps> excited. And I hope he follows through. It, 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 you know, I should have known uh, before I suggested to our listeners to actually send us booze, uh, because it's actually hard to send booze on in the mail. But apparently, it can be done with UPS. Uh, you might have to, you know, spend a little bit of extra money to, to pass through customs, but I think we're worth it personally. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, as we've already mentioned, our main event today is going to be falling in love. But uh, we've got serious business before then. A few days ago, it was tweeted by Dan Gilbert, who is the corresponding and senior author of a paper that was published in Science. The paper is titled um, Prevalence-Induced Concept Change in Human Judgment. And I, I want to name all the authors. Uh, so it's uh, a graduate student, I believe, uh, David Lavari, Daniel Gilbert, Timothy Wilson, Bo Sievers, David Amodio, and Talia Wheatley. Um, now, some people, I think, called me or called others to task for saying, hey, isn't the senior author Talia Wheatley? Why are you mentioning it by Paul, uh, by Daniel Gilbert's name? Um, assuming there's some sort of sex, maybe implicit sexism going on. But um, in social psychology, it's not always the norm that the last author is the senior author. And in fact, uh, if you look at the uh, right on the first page, uh, Daniel Gilbert is listed as the corresponding author, so the senior author on this paper. But anyhow, um, the, the paper is, I think, garnered some attention, both positive and negative. And I thought it would interesting for us to just kind of, you know, quickly go over it and see what we think, and uh, we'll see what uh, what remains after UL's depth cutting. <laughs> so does anyone, who wants to summarize the, the kind of the main idea for us? Do you mind going? Because I know you guys talked about this in live meetings. So. Yeah, sure. Um, so again, the title is Prevalence-Induced Concept Change in Human Judgment, and the idea here is that um, one's impression of how prevalent a thing might be um, changes um, depending on how you know, um, uh, depending on, on the changes in frequency that, you know, one is experienced. So, for example, uh, they have like a bunch of studies in this one kind of line where they show people a bunch of blue dots and purple dots and they have to simply say, hey, are you seeing a blue dot? Yes or no. Uh, they do that for like hundreds and hundreds of trials. Um, and you see people's judgments, you know, uh, you know, kind of sometimes they judge purple, sometimes they, they judge blue. You see this kind of beautiful looking logistic regression uh, graph. And then what they do for half the participants is it then change the frequency with which blue appears. And now blue is much, much less frequent. And then what happens is that the threshold to judge blue changes. And now what was previously judged as purple is now judged as blue. Um, so one's criterion for what is blue changes as the frequency of blues change in one's environment. It actually decreases. And, you know, the authors, uh, they do a, a series of studies on this um, uh, with that specific paradigm. But... 
you know, the authors are reaching for something much, much higher. Um, they're trying to say that concepts can creep. Okay. That, um, when you are, for, for, you know, uh, when you are a- examining the incidence of a con, of some sort of concept, the less and less prevalent it is, the more expansive your definition of that concept becomes. Right. So one example one might use is, um, um, is violence. Right. As, you know, Stephen Pickard has argued, and I, and I, and I, I believe the data, um, that violence has increased dramatically, uh, over the centuries and even, you know, even over the decades in the, in the 20th and 21st century. Um, and as a result, what we now consider violence has, you know, has changed, at least according to these authors, that our concept of violence has expanded to include even things that are minor forms of violence, uh, maybe micro you know, incidents of violence, maybe even speech now is included, it would be included as violence. So that's the kind of idea. There's a political slant to it. It, um, and they have these series of studies, and, and that's the idea, essentially. But again, it was controversial, so not everyone liked it. Yeah, so one criticism that I think is mostly off base is there were few subjects in, in these studies overall, but there are many, many trials from each subject, right? So each subject does like, I don't know, 800 trials or something like that. So I think if you're worried about power here, the level of analysis really, or the, the observation is the trial, not, not the subject. Um, so I don't think that like low power is a concern. You might say generality, right? Like in the end, they've tested 120 Harvard undergrads. Um, but for this sort of a, most of these studies deal with kind of a basic perceptual phenomenon. So they have two studies that don't deal with dot categorization, but all the rest of them are just about, is this a blue dot or not? Um, and there it seems tough to see how, you know, Harvard undergrads are going to be different from, like, let's say, a representative sample of Americans, right? That just doesn't seem all that plausible to me. So that that critique, um, I don't find that compelling. Um, and then there was another line of critique, and I know uh, I saw this on Fred Hasselman's Twitter. I don't know if anybody else brought it up as well, um, and if so, and we're uh, you know, unfairly overlooking you. Sorry. Um, but the idea is that they're just repackaging something that's kind of already known. Um, and in particular, in dynamical systems theory, there's this idea of, uh, I think it's, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, hysteresis, basically that the state of the system is influenced, affected by where it was recently. And that particularly when we're making categorization judgments, so we we have a kind of a stimulus that's that's moving in a continuous way, we have to categorize it as like yes, no in some way, that we're influenced by how we've categorized it recently, so that those judgments are kind of sticky. Right. So, for example, I found a paper which we'll link to in the show notes where it was like, imagine reaching for these objects with this stick and either you start out with a stick that's like not long enough to reach the objects or that's easily long enough to reach the objects. And then the stick grows or shrinks. Right. So if I start out with a short stick, I'm biased towards saying can't reach the objects, even when the stick is long enough. Exactly the reverse when I start out with an easily long enough stick. Right. So the idea is when I'm giving this yes, no response, this binary classification, I'm affected by where I was before by my recent history, right? And that does start to seem a little bit like what they they found in this paper. Now, I guess it's a judgment call, like how close is too close, right? Like a lot of things are like a lot of other things. Is this different enough? Like, I don't know. I don't really know how you make that judgment in a principled way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I heard some of the similar critiques. I didn't hear this one uh, research line, which actually is fascinating, by the way. Mm-hmm. I think that's so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we have a you know a history of of we keep kind of a running tab of, of like the frequency of things we see, or or, or the or, or yeah, a running tab of how we're dealing even with an object, and that changes then how we interact with the object, you know, in the present and future. That's that's 
That's kind of cool. You could also put it in Bayesian terms. We've like had a, we've established a prior, yeah. right? Right. Um, so that makes sense to me. Um, and, but now I haven't like, you know, you know, uh, scoured through the references. Do you know if they've cited, you know, this line of work? I don't. So they have a, a series of sites that say, basically, um, we know that perception is affected by context. And I don't know this literature well enough to just scanning these titles um, to see whether they've cited one of these papers that does exactly this. Right. So then the question, let, let's, you know, because we probably should have done our homework and <laughs> examine the references, but let's assume for the moment, at least, that they have cited some of these, you know, uh, their predecessors. Um would that be okay then? So they're not saying they're re- they're not saying they've event- they found something necessarily new, although they've they've maybe applied it. I mean, the last two studies maybe we should mention what those last two studies are. So unlike blue dots and purple dots, they're now judging. Um, they see a series of what is it? Uh, happy and threatening faces. Neutral and threatening. So I think. Neutral and threatening faces, and um, then the prevalence of threatening faces decreases, and then people's judgments of whether a, a face is threatening kind of changes. And now they judge a previous, you know, an ambiguous face as being threatening when it wasn't previously. Um, the second one um, was uh, they had Raiders code whether research ideas were ethical or not ethical, so kind of mimicking what a um, an ethical review board w- w- how they would judge. And again, the prevalence changes over time. Um, and when there's fewer unethical, uh, uh, you know, proposals, uh, you know, the definition of what is unethical actually changes. Um, so that's, I think, you know, maybe expanding it, uh, at least applying it. So now, you know, assuming that ha- that hasn't been done before, would you think that is then a worthwhile endeavor, a uh, worthwhile publication and a high impact? I mean, maybe the top journal in science? I don't know. I don't, I don't know the literature well enough here. So I'm sort of struggling to see like really how close is it to what's been done already? Like this stuff is like kind of technical stuff in like perception that I just an area that I don't know well. Um, I do want to say like they gave an example in the, in the SI of the unethical thing. Did you read this? I didn't see the example. It was, was it it was forcing people to lick frozen poop. It's just too cool. So that was clearly unethical, or did some, was that ambiguous? <laughs> I believe that was an example of a clearly unethical. <laughs> so, what if it was like zero Kelvin? I mean, it was like a solid right. block, yeah, yeah. Right. and you're not going to taste There's it at no, all. Although the worst there is that your tongue sticks to it, then. <laughs> right, it's unethical for a different reason. <laughs> anyway. Um, so it seems to me, thinking about like what makes this paper interesting, what makes it interesting is kind of the analogy to you know current politics, right? Yeah, it's not the dots per se, and it's a compelling analogy. And Gilbert is an amazing writer, and it's a beautifully written paper. It seems like you could take a lot of basic psychological phenomena and analogize them to exactly this phenomenon, right? So you could say, well, we know people's judgments are reference dependent. And as people's reference points for this thing change, right, we see less violent violence. We're going from a different reference point than their judgments of what constitutes violence should change. Mm -hmm. Or we know that habituation is a thing. 
right? So as people see more violence around them, they're more habituated, and then they're less likely to say, oh, that particular thing is a violent act because the threshold has gone up, right? Just in the same way that it's hard to see a flashlight outside on a, on a bright day. So they're like this kind of like habituation, sensory adaptation kind of explanation. So I can think of like 10 experiments that you could run or a series of experiments that you could run and say, aha, see, this explains why people now care about, you know, microaggressions and want to do trigger warnings and stuff. So as a like a, a strategy for explaining the world, my fear is that this like pretends to illuminate more than it actually does. Maybe that's too harsh, but it feels like a rhetorical gambit rather than a genuine explanation to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't disagree with that. I think they, um, they didn't put any constraints on the generalizability of their findings. So they went from dots to, you know, uh, you know, free speech problems on campus, right? So many, many, many steps. Now, one could easily analogize, as you, as you mentioned, UL, but I, I suppose it's up to, well, if they wanted to make that argument, maybe they should have maybe ran studies that were a bit closer, but, but didn't they? I mean, at least the ethics one, that was, that was getting there. I mean, it's not free speech on campus, but I mean, it's it's getting now into a political domain a bit. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that like, once you get too close to the thing you're trying to explain, you run into the problem of like, of course, these things are multiply determined. Yeah. I, I believe actually that people are on ethics boards are going to be more sensitive to ethical violations when they haven't uh, encountered a lot. But it's also the case that institutions are going to want to preserve themselves, right? Ethics boards want to justify their existence. If they're not finding something to object to, why are they around? Right. So there's like, there's a lot of right. <laughs> lists on the ethics. <laughs> I was, but yeah, no, uh, although I will say that you can do a lot of things at U of T. Here's one argument for why this kind of study is deserves a spot. You know, the judgment of whether it's in science or some other top journal, I think, who knows? Like, those are sometimes like roll the die. Um, uh, but um, this, I think, could be because they did make that explicit link with these political things that it seems a lot of us are interested in now, um, with this perceptual uh, phenomenon. This opens the door for other people now who are interested in politics to be, hey, can we now let us do this? Or let, you know, maybe some of the co-authors on this paper are doing that now to make that, uh, to actually test some of these ideas out um, more explicitly. And I think that's really cool um, that, you know, this idea is out there and now one can actually examine it uh, in an empirical fashion. Um, and only time will tell whether this is just, you know, about dots or whether it's about microaggressions. Um, Sounds reasonable to me. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I feel like this is a great time to take a break and then let's let's come back and fall in love. Welcome back to Two Psychologists for Beers. Uh, or today, I guess it would be three psychologists, six beers, and Mickey and Liz are drinking all six beers by themselves. Damn Isn't that right. right? <laughs> yeah. So, but don't bring what you're drinking. You're yeah, also... I'm, I'm drinking the Wild Turkey 101. Yeah. It's working out well for me. So, this is the part of the show where I give you some contact info for us. So, the easiest way to find us is on Twitter, where we're at Four Beers Pod. Our DMs are open. That means you can DM us uh, whether we follow you or not. We always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you'd prefer to email, our email address is 
fourbeerspod at gmail.com. And as always, our website is fourbeers.fireside.fm, where you can find our archive, our extensive archive of <laughs> four episodes, uh, shout outs, links, etc. And uh, we've really enjoyed hearing uh, from listeners about, uh, I guess, most recently, our intellectual dark web episode. Mickey, you have a few people that you wanted to thank by name, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, quite a few, uh, people were interacting with us, but, uh, but a few more than others. So first I want to uh, thank our uh, listener, Scott Michael, who, uh, is in Atlanta, uh, Liz Page Gould's, uh, hometown kind of. Yeah, I grew up uh, there. Right. And, uh, he offered to send us some craft brew from Atlanta. He had some snags in the post office, so, uh, he couldn't send it in the end. Um, but, uh, hopefully we've sorted that out and maybe we'll get some, some, some beer in the future. Um, so thank you, Scott. I really appreciate the offer. Um, and then we had, uh, extensive conversations with two of our, uh, listeners. So one is Zane Burney, who, um, uh, actually Zane Burney and Kyle Thomas, uh, we both had extensive DMs with. And I should say that really it was Yoel who was interacting with them, uh, more so than I. And I think both of them, and correct me if I'm wrong, you well, both of them were keyed in on one thing that you had said in our intellectual dark web ep- uh, episode. Yeah, that's right. So I said um, something that I thought was totally uncontroversial, which is that uh, one of the good things that the mainstream media does is it filters out certain extreme or crazy views. So what I was thinking of is like, look, the New York Times isn't going to let Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist, uh, write an op-ed. CNN isn't going to invite him on and so on. Right. And I I saw that as a good thing. And I I got some pushback there um, for people who I think rightly pointed out, you know, sometimes that filtering can go too far, right? So sometimes like legitimate or necessary views are excluded from these mainstream media outlets um, because of, well, you know, the because is what I guess uh, is at issue. Um, and you can come up with different explanations for that. But I, I do really appreciate the uh, thoughtful feedback. And I think it was a really productive engagement with all of those folks. And, uh, you know, keep it coming because we love to hear from people. Yeah. And again, that's a thank you again, Zane, Barney and uh, Bernie, sorry, and uh, Kyle Thomas for, for, for that extensive interaction. So we appreciate it. And yeah, you want to uh, you hear something you like, let us know. If you hear something you don't like, Definitely let us know because we're into it. We, we, we want to, uh, we want to hear your, where we've gone wrong, where you think we've gone wrong. And if we disagree with you, we'll let you, we'll let you know as well. Um, so yeah, keep, keep it coming. We're, we're into it. Absolutely. So Liz, you are in charge for our next segment. So can you explain to our audience what we're going to be doing next? Yes, indeed. So we're going to undergo the experimental generation of interpersonal closeness rather colloquially known as the fast friends procedure. And it's really meant to be a 45 minute task that mimics the natural development of intimacy or interpersonal closeness between people, where over the course of a longer period of time, uh, you'll, Mickey will start to tell, will disclose a little something about himself to me. And then I'm going to disclose back. So I disclose back and then Mickey kind of amps it up a little bit. And as we go back and forth over time, we come to know a lot about each other. We feel close to the other person. And that's really how uh, such close friendships develop. And so this procedure was developed, um, I believe, originally in 1991. But then a faster, more compact procedure was then 
published in 1997 by Arthur Aaron and his colleagues. So the key thing about these questions is that there are three sets uh, across. Uh, every set has approximately 15 questions in it. Across the sets, they escalate in how personal or intimate the content that you're asked to share with your partner is. Also within each set, those questions escalate as well. And so the idea is that you're just accelerated through that ladder of reciprocal disclosure and you end up as friends. So are we sure we want to do this on air? <laughs> so, uh, you know, part of the, I think, impetus for doing this um, was, there was actually an article written in the New York Times uh, in, I guess it's the, uh, I'm not sure there's a column called Modern Love. It was written by someone named Mandy Len uh, Catrone, I believe. is. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it. Uh, she's based out of Vancouver. And the article was um, published in January 2015. It's called To Fall in Love with Anyone do this. And she literally, uh, you know, she went with a friend, um, a, a male friend, uh, to a bar, I'm, I assume, in, in, in Vancouver, and uh, went through this fast friends procedure um, and indeed fell in love with the person she went with. And I believe they are married now. Um, now, they also did this thing, which uh, it will not work on radio, or on a podcast, uh, they also stared in their eyes for four minutes each. Well, are we going to do that as well? No. Veto. Veto that. <laughs> that would just be really, really weird. And it would make for poor podcasting. Really bad radio. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that was kind of the impetus, you know. And, and, and Liz, I mean, you didn't say this in your intro, but... Um, you're an expert in this. And and you've, I mean, this is, you've used, you've used this procedure a lot in your research. Yes. Uh, this is actually a really good procedure, I would say. It's one of the reasons why I, pro I enjoy being a social psychologist, <laughs> because for the most part, people enjoy participating in my studies. I say for the most part, because I also do stress tests, um, and those people don't enjoy as much. But you come into my lab, and you're going to, at the very least, interact with some stranger. Usually, you'll play a party game of some form, or you'll do this fast friends procedure with other people. So they giggle, they like each other, it's a good time. All right, so the way that it works is that one of the people, usually in a pair, but, you know, hey, we like to get uh, a little bit, you know, we're kinky. We're right next to the French province. So, you know, it's close enough. And this is going to be a polyamorous, like, yes, little yeah. thing here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're open to different approaches. So the way it normally works is that somebody starts off asking the question. Uh, their partner or partners will then answer the question for themselves in turn. And then finally, the person who asks the question will answer it themselves. All right, guys, you ready? I'm ready. I'm it's ready. happening. It's happening. All right. Given the choice of anyone in the world, whom would you want as a dinner guest? I'm supposed to answer first? Yeah. Uh, I would like Richard Feynman as a dinner guest. They don't have to be living, right? No, no, I don't yeah. think so, yeah. Because he just seems awesome and brilliant, and maybe he could teach me some things about physics. Hmm. Oh my god, I can go so many places with this. I can go with someone I like uh, intellectually, or someone that's more spiritual. Um... I'm going to say, I think it would be really cool to have had dinner with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. I think to kind of understand what, you know, the struggles he went through and, um, yeah, hear about his experience. That would be lots of fun. Interesting. 
Yeah, that's so I actually I, I, I have to disclose that I have seen these questions before and neither Yoel nor Mickey have ever seen these questions before. So I did get the chance to think about this one a little bit. Um, I think that my knee jerk response is to say someone would be fun. And I was thinking about living people. So there it's like, oh, well, Stephen Colbert is sort of the instant thought. It was like, he'd be, he'd be entertaining. He seems like he's generally pro-social. It'd be great. Everybody have a great time. Um, but the person who hop, uh, pops into my mind next actually is this guy. I think his name is Daryl uh, Davis or Davies. Um, and he's this man who uh he's a black man and he's gone out and befriended a number of members of the kkk for the purpose of essentially converting them um but not only for that purpose i don't think it's just for that i think it was simply to establish these friendships and i would really like to have dinner with him i would really like to hear his insights because i think he has a lot to teach me about cross-group friendship and its impact on prejudice. Cool. I can see it. And that's, that's stage one. <laughs> I was already like, well, I don't know who I want for dinner. <laughs> All right. All right, next up. So you're up next. You're all, you, all, I, you will read it and I will answer. Mickey, would you like to be famous in what way? Hmm. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I, I think... I mean, for, I, you know, if I was to be famous, I would like to be famous as a scientist. Um, and I know we're not supposed to seek fame and, and, and I don't seek it, but if it's a byproduct of what I do, I wouldn't complain. Um, yeah. I think that the fame thing is tied up in success in our field, which is a weird thing, except that fame is so fundamentally limited in academia. You know, you could be literally at the pinnacle, I mean, the top person in your entire field and you step into an elevator and the person next to you is going to have no idea who you are. So I, I want to be recognized. I want to be able to contribute to the greater human dialogue. That's what I want to do. And so in that sense, I think you need a certain level of fame. I do not want the level of fame where everybody's snapping pictures of me all the time and really cares about me. Um, that I don't want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I realize it sounds ridiculous for somebody who has a podcast. But... <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, no. I, I, I hate being... I hate that people know who I am. I hate uh, that I need to worry about like what I'm doing because somebody might, that who I don't know might see me and be like, oh, I know who that dude is. Look how drunk he is or whatever. I miss being a grad student when nobody gave a shit who you were. You could do whatever dumb stuff you wanted and it had zero consequences. That was amazing. And I would like to go back. So truly, that. I mean, you know, again, this is maybe, uh, I'm vain or narcissistic, but, you know, you go to a conference and, 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 a, and a grad student is kind of excited to meet you. That doesn't kind of perk you up a bit? I like that, but it's outweighed by uh, that I don't like. Now, it, now I'm sounding to myself like I'm trying to do all the shady shit, and I swear <laughs> it's not that. It's you. just I find it awkward, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. And, and like Liz said, the problem is... I do want to be like successful in my work. And then that kind of inherently means that people know who you are. But like, if I could somehow magically mm -hmm. like remove the second part, then yeah, for <laughs> sure. Cool. All right. I'm up. 
the next one? Before making a telephone call, do you ever rehearse what you're going to say? Why? Okay, so totally yes, um, but not very frequently at all. So there are certain phone calls where I will literally, well, I'll script out what I'm going to say. I write it in text edit, and then I basically read it, trying as hard as I can not sound like I'm reading it. But that's usually for procedural errand type things where I need to communicate certain information. I want to get something done. And I, I normally don't think before I speak. So if I don't prepare for, say, ordering a pizza, um, then... It's just going to be way more complicated than it needs to be. But most of the time, I do not think about what I say before I say it. And that's the problem and why I also don't normally make grammatical sentences, etc. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think almost never. And then I end up blurting out something dumb or <laughs> <laughs> tripping over my words or saying something nonsensical. So, yeah, I probably should, but I don't. Yeah, I probably fall in your camp. I, I, I don't think I ever do. Um, I can remember one time specifically, and that was when I asked uh, a woman, now my wife, on a date. Um, so I had, uh, I had met her the previous weekend, and we clearly knew each other, but we, you know, we spoke a few words, but I thought she was hot. And, um, and then I found out through like a friend of a friend that she thought I was cute. So like, Ooh, all right. So then I, I waited for a few days because I was told that's how you have to do things. Um, and then I rehearsed and practiced what I was going to say, but because I rehearsed and practiced what I was going to say, it came out so quickly <laughs> and so garbled that she barely understood what I was <laughs> saying. <laughs> like I used, I still remember what I said. I said, essentially, um, yeah, hi, Naomi. Uh, I don't think you might not remember who I am. I'm Mickey. Um, uh, and we met th this past weekend and, you know, we shook hands and my father always told me to trust someone who's got a good handshake. So I trust you. And would you like to go on a date with me? <laughs> so that was essentially my little line. Nice. <laughs> uh, and it worked out. <laughs> All right. The handshake is amazing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do you have a secret hunch about how you will die? Ooh, secret hunch. Hmm. Not really. Um, there's some diabetes that runs in my family, so I wouldn't be surprised there's some complication of blood sugar level. That would be a, a theory. Yeah. Lung cancer. Do you smoke? Um... Not cigarettes. <laughs> and no, I don't smoke. <laughs> per se. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah. But no, I mean, a lot of people, my, my father died of lung cancer. His grandfather died of lung cancer. His aunt died of lung cancer. And only my father smoked. So I, was, I don't know. I've just always sort of had this foregone conclusion for some reason that I was going to die of lung cancer as well. It's actually why I want to get genetic testing, because I feel like the worst they could tell me is something that I already believe. And the best they could tell me is that I'm not more likely than everybody else. So then would be in a great place. So anyway, that's yeah. why I'm thinking about that. But I don't want to put all my data into the repository. So, you know, there's <laughs> just submit your DNA under Mickey's name. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Lots and ins and outs, man, going through old dude's head for sure. So <laughs> 
my answer is kind of boring. Um, so I had a Hodgkin's lymphoma in my 20s and I was treated for it and, you know, it's cured, but uh, the treatment is kind of intense and can give you different kinds of cancer later. So probably that. Don't make me say that. Boring. <laughs> I know. I'm like, that's yeah, the least boring. bomb on me here. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Mickey, what is the greatest accomplishment of your life? Recording this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, in all seriousness, um, well, although I am proud of this podcast, uh, I think uh, my family, you know, um, being a parent, raising children, um, who I'm very proud of and I think are wonderful people. Um, and I look forward to seeing what they turn out to be like as adults. But um, yeah, I would say that. In many ways, mine is the same. Um, but I would expand it mildly to say uh, forming connections with other people. I've been feeling particularly grateful over the last, I don't know, period of time, recent period of time that I find myself able to connect with some people, not all people. Um, but maybe I, I feel like it's a gift I have and it's something that uh, gives me immense fulfillment in life. I hate to keep stealing Liz's answers, but <laughs> yeah, that's totally it. Like my friends and my family and uh, the people that I'm close with, um, that uh, some of them who I've known now for, you know, 40 years practically you know that's it's not nothing yeah. mm -hmm. all right liz um what do you value most in a friendship thing i value most in a friendship is a sense of connection uh as i already said but what i mean by that is something special where you feel like this individual is very interesting and also thinks you're very interesting. And the idea is that there's some synergy together that makes life a little bit more enjoyable, you know, adds those sparkles around the edges. Um, but it's based on a fundamental platform of goodness, pro-sociality, um, trustworthiness, and loyalty. Um, I, I care very much about those things. I have a high bar for people I consider to be my friends in that sense. But otherwise, yeah. Among the good people that I brought close, then it would definitely be just the enjoyment of life that they had. Yeah, that's an interesting question because there's lots of things that I think are necessary, right? Mm -hmm. So like kindness, for example, is totally necessary. Mm -hmm. um, loyalty. Um, just thinking that they're a good person in general. Um, but to me, like, if I have to pick one thing, it's being able to have like a conversation that like flows and that feels like exciting and fun, like that kind of like verbal back and forth. Like without that, uh, I'm just, yeah, there's just something like crucial missing for me. Mm -hmm. That's a hard one for me. I mean, I think all the things you, you guys both mentioned, uh, resonate with me as well. I keep coming back to loyalty, you know, like in the end being with, you know, the person being with you, even when, um, even when you've done something wrong, okay, even when you have done something wrong, um, and they can still understand you and still be with you. Um, yeah, I mean, that's an odd one, but, uh, yeah.
I think that would be at the heart of uh, my value the most. I value a lot of other things as well, but maybe that's in the heart. Ah, yeah. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I forgive you, Mickey. All right. <laughs> what did I do, Yoel? So, Yoel, what is your most treasured memory? Oof. Um, so, I don't remember things well. Like, especially autobiographical memory is, is really poor, and I don't spend time thinking about the past that much. Like, I don't... I don't pull out a memory that I like and enjoy it. So I, I'm just going to have to take a pass on this question because I feel like it's written for somebody that I'm not. Like, I realize I'm weird in this way, and sometimes it freaks me out a little bit because I feel like other people are, like, living this very different life where they have this, like, kind of continuous, like, story about who they are kind of thing, and it's based on these, like, really well-remembered defining instances in their past. And, like, for me, it's just it just doesn't work that way. Mm. Um, for me, I don't think it, it's not a specific memory per se, but um, I had this very deep memory. This memory, like a very, you know, rich, super enjoyable, super like fulfilling moment when I was young. Maybe I was six years old, seven years old, um, being with my extended family in Israel. So my mom is Israeli, Yemenite Israeli, and she she lived. She grew up in a in a neighborhood of a city called Rehovot in Israel that was almost 100% Yemeni Jews, um, and we would spend summers there. And we had no family uh, in Canada at all, other than my nuclear family, but we had a huge family in this one town, uh, this one neighborhood. And it was this amazing communal experience where, you know, people... People wouldn't call each other. They would just go to each other's houses, you know, stop by. Doors were open. Kids were all around playing. It was just a, a very free time. I have such positive memories of that time. Yeah. I think I'm a lot like Yoel, actually, where, I mean, even when people stop me in the hall and they're like, how are you? I'm like, wait, what? Like, now I got to reflect on this? What? But so therefore, I just make it super recent, honestly. and. I was sitting on the porch, uh, my front porch with my husband and my daughter the other night and we were making pop or we had made popsicles. We were eating them and kind of goes back to my perfect day. I like sitting in one place and hanging out with people, but I declared to everybody that this was all I wanted out of life. So <laughs> the popsicle <laughs> indeed <laughs> on a hot day, nothing porch better. sitting. Yep. Staring at everybody, hanging out with those you love. Yeah. If you knew that in one year you would die suddenly, would you change anything about the way you are living, you're now living? Why? Almost. I mean, for the most part, I do what I'm going to do. I probably have a few bucket list things, but honestly, there's some hard trucks that I would try that I'm just not interested in trying until I have six months to live. And I've told Ian this a long time ago. He knows. Um, but yeah, so I got a plan. Dude, totally. <laughs> yeah, we're like on the same page. No question. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like cash in my savings, um, mm -hmm. get my girlfriend to take the year off, yeah. go to like Thailand or something, do a shitload of heroin, like yeah. just chill on the beach. 
Which is that's kind of awesome. Right. I'm like exactly in the same mindset. And it might be a slightly different, you know, for me, it'd probably be go to Indonesia, go to Bali, uh, and, you know, just, you know, spend tons of, you know, be generous with my money, give it to, you know, locals. But oh, yeah, try like DMT, ayahuasca, um, peyote, whatever it is. I, you know, there's a whole world of drugs I have not tried. I mean, I, I feel like I'm missing out. And I'm a little too scared to do them right now. I feel that's a very narrow answer. We all said the same thing. <laughs> well, we are all good friends. I think this is why we're friends. Uh, you know, makes uh, maybe a higher congruence here. How close and warm is your family? Do you feel that your childhood was happier than most other people's? Hmm. Those are two completely different questions. So the first question is, how close and warm is your family? Do you feel your childhood was happier than most other people's? So in that, is that first question referred to my childhood family, or is that referred to, you think, my current family? In context, I would say your family growing up. Okay. Uh, repeat that first part again. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> How close and warm is your family? Right. Uh, so we were, I would say we were, we were very affectionate and warm. Not as much my dad. I think my, my dad, who is Belgian and I, I think a bit more, I don't want to say he was reserved, but maybe he wasn't as touchy-feely. Uh, whereas my mom was, you know, very physically affectionate and verbally affectionate. Um, and uh, the second part of the question? Do you feel your childhood? <laughs> You're right. This is weird. Yeah. Do you feel like your childhood was happier than most other people's? No. I don't think it was happier than most other people's. No, I mean, we had an affectionate family, a warm family, but no, I don't think it was happier. Yeah, I'd say that my family is uh, very close and warm. Uh, not to say that we are not crazy, but... Um, not mutually exclusive. <laughs> exactly. But we're very close and warm. That's definitely true. And then I'd also say that, no, I don't think my childhood was happier than other people's. I think I was very privileged in many ways. Um, but, you know, it's complex. I wouldn't say that I was happier than other kids. Yeah. I don't think my family was particularly warm, especially growing up. I think if if anything, they're warmer now. Like my parents are more direct about expressing affection now than they were yeah. when I was a kid. Um, and no, I wasn't a particularly happy child. So below the median on that question. And that's kind of a strange question, that second half, right? Because yeah, it's yeah. like, you're not comparing yourself to an average. Right. So if I, I said no, that could mean I'm just average. That could mean I was below average. That could mean all kinds of things. I think we're overthinking it. Yeah. <laughs> were you happy as a child? <laughs> uh, for what in your life do you feel most grateful? What in my life do I feel most grateful? Hmm. So many things. Um, you got to pick one. Yeah. Well, actually, no, that's not true. It doesn't say it doesn't say for what one thing. Mm -hmm. I think uh, maybe my parents for instilling the values that I have, my kind of orientation to life. Um, I think they, you know, um, provided education for me um, and helped me get to where I am. Um, you know, without them instilling values in me, I wouldn't be here right now. 
Um, so, yeah. Careful my parents. See, now I want to steal that. I mean, <laughs> so, yeah, I would say I'm... I'm incredibly grateful for all that I was given in the in certain values uh, that were instilled in me. But the thing I'm most grateful for is the presence of my daughter Ada in my life because she is uh, amazing, which of course sounds lame to everybody else. But I think this child is a genius. Like she has to be because no kid should be able to do the stuff she does she's kind and she's interesting and she just keeps getting better and more interesting and i i really thought kids would suck a lot more but then i met ada and she's mine and i really appreciate that yeah oh <laughs> evidently mickey doesn't love his children <laughs> <laughs> Only UL would say that. I was just fucking with you on purpose. <laughs> A plus troll. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so mine is, I, I feel somewhat obvious and boring again. You know, like the, uh, the cancer I had, like, it would not have been treatable, like, let's say 25 years ago. Um, so the treatment that I had that, that ended up, you know, curing me um, was new. Um, and had I lived a little earlier, I, I would be dead now. So... I guess like I, you know, it gives me a profound gratitude for like, obviously the specific doctors who treated me, but also for yeah. like the whole like medical science as flawed as it is, as like many problems as it has, like sometimes I come up with shit that totally fucking works, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah so good I for too am grateful for them. Yeah. Oh, thanks, I'm very guys. grateful for them as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want some of that wild turkey. You can have some, but you have to promise to sip it, not to, not to do it as a shot. I'll finish this water. Okay. Share with your partners an embarrassing moment in your life. Freaking every day, man. <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, just top of mind, when I uh, meant to reply to the chair of our department <laughs> with an email saying, do we really have to go to these job talks? And instead, I hit reply all oh, and no, went to everybody no, no. in the department. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, yeah, that was that was not a good that was not a good scene. Oh my god, I, I I feel it happens to me like every third day. I can't actually think of a specific event that I that I am particularly embarrassed about. Um, but I'm embarrassed a lot of my own behavior. Uh, yeah, let's leave it at that. I actually, without even, I don't even know how this is possible, but I essentially ended up pantsing myself <laughs> when I was uh, at like a breakfast with graduate students at Michigan State University before I was giving a talk. Well, then what does pantsing mean? Well, pantsing would be where you pull the pants off someone. <laughs> so, you know, just their underwear or whatever is sticking around. <laughs> and in this case, I was wearing a skirt that had an elastic waist. Um, and I don't know. I, I was, like, squatting on the floor in order to get something out of my book bag, actually. And, like, I guess it kind of caught the back in a certain way. So the back of the skirt went fully down. And I was wearing pantyhose and, you know, whatever. 
uh, patterned uh, underwear. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the graduates, I didn't even notice. Um, and one of the graduates, so I'm like, just my ass is hanging out. And one of the graduate students said, hmm, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't really know what that was about, so I'm like, whatever. And then this other student, very kindly, uh, with love, said to me, um, I think that your skirt fell down. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> so is that what you said was interesting? I don't even know. So anyway, so yeah. So that was pretty embarrassing. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that's a great story. I love it. I wish I could remember one. I feel like I'm, I'm embarrassed. Well, I must say, I have a low talk. I feel what would embarrass normal people doesn't embarrass me like anymore. Like, so it's like, yeah, I do foolish things all the time and apologize for them. I'm just an idiot. Um, yeah. But I can't think of anyone specifically. So I love that story. <laughs> You've never pantsed yourself in public. Yeah. Not that I am aware. <laughs> um, um, ooh, this is good. Um, when did you last cry in front of another person? Or by yourself. Oh man. When? Um well you know relationships are hard, man. Um relationships are hard. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, <laughs> 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 um yeah. I mean like so I've been married well, I've been married uh what'll be sixteen years in August. But I've been together with Naomi, my 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 wife, uh, for twenty one years, um, and that by all measures is a, is a very much a successful relationship. But you know, we have ups and downs. We have uh, yeah, ups and downs. We fight occasionally, sometimes more often than we'd like, um, and when that happens, occasionally it gets emotional, um, including. Uh, me crying about things, upset about things, sad about, you know, uh, what she says about me, what I say about her, uh, how we treat each other. Um, sometimes we get in these places where we're stuck. We're stuck in these kind of, these patterns. Um, and sometimes it seems hopeless. And then when you have, feel that hopelessness, it, uh, yeah. Sometimes I cry. Doesn't feel good. Thankfully, it doesn't happen as often. Um, but when you're in that, when you're stuck in that, it, you can't think of anything else. So that sucks. Yeah. Last time I cried in front of another person would probably be this rather epic uh, car ride back from Sips uh, that I had. That was like a week ago. Yeah, that was a week ago. Uh, but with one of your graduate students and also uh, one of the former postdocs in our uh, department. And man, I mean, we're all sort of sharing. And one of one of the people in particular were sharing actually about loss in their family and, and dealing with that and issues regarding all those things. And anyway, I started crying. Um, just cause I understood. But last time I cried by myself was, uh, this morning because yeah, relationships are hard and sometimes, uh, you think no one else really wants to see you cry. Uh, mine was when the dog died. 
um, and like specifically, uh, they you know gave him a, a lethal injection, and uh, it, was a, it was very quick. And I was there with him and, and the bat and attack, and uh, yeah, I just started crying, and they, it was really you know I mean embarrassing. Although I suppose they probably see that a lot. They were nice enough to <laughs> leave me alone in there for a while until I recovered. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. This is an uplifting episode here. Really? <laughs> this is what our <laughs> listeners want. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, They're probably leaving you with Bruno, you know. What's that? They're probably leaving you with Bruno so that you can yeah. have your time. Yeah. We are about to enter uplifting territory. Thank God. Okay. I know, right? All right. Fear and down with Terry <laughs> Lake. Yeah. It can go dark. bad. Yeah. Right, right. Um, okay. Uh, I think that will totally work. Uh, tell your partner something that you like about them already. So maybe we'll do it like Liz to UL, UL to me, and me to Liz. So well, tell like your partner something things. you like about them already. I know. So I like many, many things about you, Yoel. So I'm trying to think about maybe what is the most unique thing about you. I wouldn't necessarily call you quiet, but I will say that when you speak, you really have something to say. And I find it is always unique, but that's not even capturing what it is because there is something special about specifically your thoughts they do have a coherence to them but they also seem to be so unique that you're always contributing something and so i find you particularly interesting i suppose yeah that's really sweet (laughs) thanks buddy (laughs) well this really works yeah (laughs) Um, Before you say anything nice about me, pour me some coal. Uh, okay, some, some, there we go. Where's that? Wild turkey. Wild turkey, right. Mickey, I'm going to follow Liz's rule, which I think is a good one, because I could name a lot of things that I admire about you that are shared by lots of other people, but that wouldn't be that interesting. So I think the thing that I admire about you that's that's somewhat unique is your kind of emotional honesty and your willingness to like just put it out there like i never have to worry about whether you are bullshitting me or telling me what i want to hear like you're always a hundred percent like i'm gonna say what i believe right and like i i think that is such a valuable thing to have in a friend to know that they are always going to be honest with you and i really appreciate it God, I'm going to cry right now. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Well, thank you. I feel so nice. Um, Liz, there's so many positive things I could say about you. Um, I feel any one of them would be trite. Um, I know you so well. Um, I think you do. I was gonna. I was gonna say. How positive and energetic you are. You know, you light up a room. Okay? I was going to say that, but I think that's true. And a lot of people would say that about you as well. Um, I think, though, it's that you're just deeply, deeply kind. You're deeply a a good person. And you you genuinely care about other people um, in a way that I don't. Um, or, you know, that, yeah, it just, you're a role model. 
Um, and I admire that. I would like to be more like that. Um, and I appreciate that so much. Well, thanks. It means a lot to me. <laughs> <laughs> Something I aspire to. And of course, within your mind, you're like, oh, I don't really need that. But, you know. You do. You do. You're selfless in many ways. And I can, like, come down on those bitches, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. You will fuck somebody up. Right? <laughs> I, I will cut you. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what, if anything, is too serious to be joked about? Hmm. That's a good question. Nothing. 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 Mm. <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> um, I was going to say something like related to like racism or genocide, but I've seen jokes about those things. Good genocide jokes. Yeah, <laughs> solid genocide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And they can't work. Uh, I'm gonna, just, I'm gonna cop out. I'm gonna agree with you. Nothing. Oh God! All right. So I would say current harm, um, just because there are a few things like I do watch Stephen Colbert a lot, and in general, I really enjoy his comedy. But there are a few things that you know, with the families being separated and all that, sometimes the jokes are just like, oh. It's, it's not too serious to be joked about. Okay, so I do want to clarify that. It's not that I think it's off limits, but it's just not fun. That's what mm-hmm. I mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're almost at the end, by the way. All right. And this is I feel we are falling in love, by the way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, feel, I feel we're like, you know, getting closer here. Yeah. We're bonding. <laughs> yeah. If you were to die this evening, with no opportunity to communicate with anyone, what would you most regret not having told someone? Why haven't you told them yet? Well, first of all, I'm not sure I agree with the premise, for me at least. I feel that I have have told the people who I loved, I love them. But I don't know, you know, relationship with parents, what a, what a, like, that's hard. And I feel I've gained so much insight as a parent myself as to how my parents, especially my dad, treated me. Um, I didn't always like my dad. Um, I feel he's been a much better person in the past, like, two decades. I mean, a long time now. He's made amends. He's been a good person. Um, deeply good person. Um, and maybe I haven't told him as fully as I as he deserves to hear. Because yes, he made mistakes when we were younger and I, re- I I wish he wasn't a certain way when we were younger. Like my, I think when I say we, I think my brother and I. My brother, my brother was one year younger than I was. I am. Um, and uh, he wasn't always the best, um, but he's been so good the past few decades, and it's, he's made up for for the bad stuff. Even though I, the bad stuff is imprinted on me because I was young when it happened. Um, so maybe letting him know 
that it's okay. All is forgiven. Yeah. I think that I, I agree with you that Mickey, that I, that the premise may not be right for me. Like my problem is usually not keeping things. in, But so then I think I will uh, twist the question to say, what would I regret? Um, What, what would I wish I could communicate if the death were truly sudden? It's like, if you didn't have five minutes to text, because if I did have five minutes to text, yeah, I think I would tell, eh, it's boring. I would tell the people that I love them. I want that to be the last thing I ever say to people. I do try to make that the last thing I say to certain people um, because I expect that anyone could die at any moment. Actually, that's sort of a part of my life. So um, I would want to say it one more time so they knew that the last thing I wanted to say was I love you and that that was the culmination of my life. So Mickey, I think you said it about parents and about family more generally. Um, like I, it's weird. Like I, I don't have trouble telling my friends that I love them, but like, you know, my, uh, my parents, my siblings, it just feels awkward. Um, there's not really a good reason, um, but it just feels a little awkward. And so I, I would want to tell them that because I, I really do. It's just, tough to express it somehow or family norms or something like a little more kind of the opposite of your family i guess Mm -hmm. do you think they would be listening to this oh no i haven't told them we have (laughs) (laughs) you're gonna send me their email address right send this to them (laughs) no they're uh they're unreachable. Sorry. sorry they don't have email they're 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 not on internet (laughs) exactly well last one all right. Share a personal problem and ask your partner's advice on how or she might, how he or she, sorry, might handle it. Also, ask your partner to reflect back to you how you seem to be feeling about the problem you have just. So, <laughs> repeat the question. <laughs> it's not a problem. I think this is why you're supposed to do them sober. <laughs> yeah. Share a personal problem and ask your partner's advice on how he or she might handle it. Also, ask your partner to reflect back to you how you seem to be feeling about the problem you have chosen. Hmm. A personal problem. <laughs> I only want to pass on this, I, I swear to you. Um, a personal problem. Kind of pass and then come back after. You can go last All right. if you want. Yes, I would yeah. rather go last. That's hard. Well, part of what I think makes it hard is that, you know, many of our personal problems are interpersonal problems. And we know that these, this is a podcast. We don't want to hurt anybody, you know. Um. I mean, truly, I would say, and I and I have been trying to share this widely because I, or with whatever. Um, I don't know; it's too general, but I've had a really hard year in the last year. Um, How come? 
everything crumbled, it seemed, um, in all aspects of life. And so to make it less general, I would say that my problem right now, uh, thankfully I've gone to therapy and I like love my therapist. Um, and I've learned all these amazing tools and I'm very grateful for it. But nonetheless, like, yeah, I do kind of feel like things are not quite right. I don't know. Maybe I need to pass. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's hard to put into words something that I could get advice on. Like, honestly, the best advice that you can give me is just like, Liz, it'll be cool. It'll be fine. I mean, part of it is also, you know? we are broadcasting. So yeah, we want to, yeah. you know, talk about this, uh, to whoever's listening. Um, it's kind of intense. I think, though, like, that is something that we we all kind of know that, like, being an academic is tough on your mental health. Yeah. A lot of people struggle with these issues, but that doesn't really get talked about that much. Yeah. And if you had asked me before you said that, like, does Liz struggle with mental health stuff? I would have said like, no, she's like so positive all the time. Right. So it's like, uh, yeah, I, I feel like a lot of us are like doing this kind of trying to do this alone and, and not realizing how many of the rest of us are maybe going through something similar. Mm. Totally. Mm -hmm. yeah. And yeah. And in that sense, I think that, you know, there's definitely a lot to be said for other academics. I think that there's a lot of stress, obviously, that comes with the job. And you need to develop your own personal relationship with stress. You either like it or you don't. And if you do like it, then, hey, like, great. Roll with that. <laughs> you know, like, then you're good. Um, if you don't, you know, then I think that you need to keep it in mind. And I do think that many things uh, began with me just continually trying to amp things up. Because every year I'd be like, all right, I was able to handle this amount. So I'm just going to handle a little bit more next year. And I'll be better than I was before. And this is how I've managed to be. Not competitive with other people, but competitive with myself. And then, nonetheless, still a badass. Um, that was the idea. But I think that you need to have, to give yourself some breaks, I think you need to cut yourself some slack. And I've decided, ultimately, that it's these transition years that can be many things. It can be becoming a junior professor. Um, it can be, well, anything going on in your life. In my case, I think it was coming back to work for mat leave, and but nonetheless um, agreeing to many more things all at once that I would be responsible for professionally than I ever had before. So what I should have done was at the very least just kept it steady because I was adding something on by trying to transition into being an academic and a parent at the same time. Um, so there is the stress that came from that. And truly, it was a constant elevated heart rate that began um, around late April of 2017 and didn't really go away until December of 2017. And I'm not ashamed to say this. I think that it's important for people to know. There are times where you have suicidal ideation because you're like, I just can't handle this feeling anymore. And my heart won't calm down. Um, 
But that's why therapy is great. There are tools, people. There's these amazing tools. If you go to an evidence-based psychotherapist, then they sit there and they, like, lecture you. And my guy has a whiteboard and he's, you know, like, making diagrams and stuff and whatever. It might seem kind of gimmicky, but it actually works. And the anxiety went away. I now feel like I'm enjoying life so much more. But, you know, that uncovered, unfortunately, a lot of other things. I ended up having a number of uh, relationship fallouts over the last year. Um, and that continued to then propel me into having a bad year. And some of those are coming actually to an interesting close because I've talked to everybody now that I feel like I had a fallout with. And some of those talks are still ongoing. Um and some of them are still hard, and we're going to figure it out. But, uh, but yeah, it's been a hard year. Hmm. But Mickey's actually been really helpful to me. You've really been here, and I really needed you this year. And I really appreciate it, and I will always fucking appreciate it. Anytime, Liz. Always. Um, so, I was, you know, you were answering, and, and I, was, I was thinking about my own kind of major problems. Um, I think a problem that, I wonder if this is, I'm not sure if it's unique to scientists or is particularly endemic in scientists, but, um, I've experienced a conflict that's caused me problems, you know, pretty regularly. And that's the conflict between truth, seeking truth and getting along. So when, I don't know, when someone says something that I know is incorrect, when I know there are facts that, you know, that, that contradict their views and their opinions, I'm just like, ah, you're, you're not, you're not saying the right thing. You're incorrect. You're actually incorrect. And if I point that out, I'm a fucking asshole, right? I'm a jerk. Um, but it's, like, it's just in me. It's a part of who I am. Like, truth-seeking, like, figuring shit out is, like, part of my DNA. Yeah, this desire to be right. This desire to let people, to correct people who I think are wrong has gotten me into a lot of trouble. Um, has made me... Um, I've, I don't know if I've lost friends, but I probably haven't made friends as a result of uh, of this attitude. I probably turned people off. I think you've made some friends. Yeah, I probably <laughs> made friends too. I probably made friends too. That is true. But I think among scientists, right? I think there's a shared value among scientists. So you know, like, this is easy in 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 a department meeting, but in like you know in civil society, <laughs> it's different. Um, and that's played out even in my relationship with with my wife. Um, that's caused, that's caused problems for sure. Not easy. Yeah. Mine is related to, to what Liz said of, um, just never really knowing how much it should be working. Um, and kind of veering between like working too much and, and feeling kind of like burnt out or obsessive about it. And then feeling like I'm not doing enough and like I'm being lazy and kind of like beating myself up about that. It's tough, right? Because we don't, you know, we don't have a manager or we don't have a boss telling us like what we're supposed to be doing and the relationship between the effort you put in now and the like 
final reward, like let's say getting a paper published or whatever. It's pretty pretty big space there. Um, so in the moment, you kind of have to stay motivated by some mixture of like I find it intrinsically interesting, and uh, I have an eye towards future rewards. And you know, I still find that tough. It's I've been doing this now for um, let's see since two thousand three, so like fifteen years, right? And I still find it difficult to like strike that balance in the right way. Um, and I still have days where I get nothing done, and I could feel kind of shitty that I didn't get anything done. It sucks. Yeah, those days do suck. But I mean, the thing is, it's mostly a great job, right? So I feel like kind of weird complaining about it, mm -hmm. right? Like, oh my god, my job where I get to like work on whatever I, wa I want and set my own hours. It's so hard. <laughs> I wish, though, I, I hear what you're saying. Oh, no, so definitely. I, I wish there were like yeah. those days that at the end of the day are like complete wastes. Complete, like, you just fucked around on Twitter or you fucked around doing whatever. You're like, you know what, Day? I'm writing you off. And I'm accepting that nothing good is happening today and whatever. But like that, we barely have that at the beginning of the day. You're like, yeah, you start out the day with so much ambition. Yeah. Um, yeah. It would be nice to know ahead of time so you could just be like, I'm going to cut my losses and go to the beach. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Go for a bike ride, play some frisbee. Yeah. Do something fun. Yeah. Do some excessive drugs. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Little uh, ayahuasca. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, so that's it. We're out of cards. We're out of cards. Yeah. Are, are we in love, Mickey? Um, I don't know if we're in love, but but I I, I don't know. I, I mean, I do feel closer to you guys. I mean, I feel like this is a bit darker than I thought it was going to go. I thought it was going to be a bit more positive, to be honest. Um, but I mean, we revealed like intimate things. Um, I mean, some things I you know from personally, I I I didn't even want to answer them because it was too maybe a bit too personal. Yeah. Um. What do you think? I think the shit works. Yeah. 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 Uh, do you think our listeners will, will will enjoy or appreciate our, you know, uh, revelations? God only knows. I, I Honestly, I worry about this being too self-indulgent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It could be one of those episodes. But, you know, I've heard a few now podcasts. Um like for Black Goat, for example. So these are, you know, you know we've talked about the Black Goat a lot because we love them. Um and I think the the episodes that I like the most are when they talk about their like their past, their childhood, like you know things, and like learning about them. So, but they're way more likable than I am. So, uh, <laughs> so that could be what's going on That's here, really. True. No, I, <laughs> I don't know. I think if you give it a really solid disclaimer, it's like only listen to this if you are interested in listening to this. Then, hey, that's your own damn fault if you listened all the way through the end. That's right. If you're listening right now, it's your own damn fault. That's right. 